So my name is Brian Fannin. I have the privilege, I've been at Grace about 10 years. And I have the privilege of serving uh, you, the body, uh, as an elder. And I've done that since <clears throat> about, I guess, a year and a half now, uh, 2013. So I'm one of the newbies. And, you know, there's a lot of questions often from a congregation that's elder-led. They say, what in the world? How do they choose elders? Why? Why that guy? All right. Um, and, you know, how does that, how's that come about? Well, there are, there's an interview process and uh, your approach, and that's wonderful and fantastic, and it, it's, it's so humbling. But there are things that go on behind the scenes, and I'm here to tell you about the behind the scenes this morning. So behind the scenes, it goes kind of like this. So you take a group of elders, and you, uh, you get a guy like Rob Lorman. Uh, and if you know Rob, Rob has hair. And Rob takes a look at the elder body and said, we need one guy with hair. We need another guy with hair. All right? Number two, Roger Patterson is an elder, and he's six foot 10,000. I mean, he's huge. It hurts me just to look up at him. And I wonder, God, come on, you know? But Roger says, oh, we need a token short guy, so let's get him on there. And then the third one, uh, you know, Ken Long says, we need at least one guy that sounds like he's from Kentucky. So, <laughs> and so here I am. Here I am, and I am grateful to be with you today. I want to share with you from Exodus chapter 3, and if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there with me. Things God does not know. That for most of us, when we hear something like that, we go, wow, that's sacrilege, that's heresy. It's actually meant to just poke you and see if you're awake. Are you awake? Yeah. All right, good. I make you a promise, I'm not going to waste your time. And I'm going to speak one sermon, you're going to hear many messages. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit works. Because you bring to this room your experience and what's going on in your life. Just as Moses brought his experience to Exodus chapter 3. Now if you know anything about the background, the book of Exodus is a big deal to the Jews. As big a deal as Romans is to us, to the Jews, the book of Exodus is huge. It is the central place that they identify that that is the place that God called a man, and called a people out. And he brought redemption, rescue, and brought them to a good land flowing with milk and honey. And it began really in this first encounter with, with Moses. So let's, let's look at the passage. And as, as, as we look at this passage, I want you to understand the Bible is made up of all kinds of different types of literature. Uh, there's history. There's poetry in the Psalms, there's prophecy, there's gospel, there's letters, apocalyptic literature as well. And there's also this thing called narrative. And narrative is a story. And the story is there, God gives it, to show us things. And psychologists tell us that most of the time when we watch movies or read books, we write ourselves in, where we see ourselves. And I believe today that God's going to write you into this story. 
I believe God has things to say to you about you. And I don't know what you bring, but I know that Moses was just a regular guy at the end of the day. And his life was not beyond God's reach to redeem and rebuild. And I want to show you what he did. Verse 1, now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and he said, Moses... Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Father God, we pray that you bless the reading of your word. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things. Amen. So we face dilemmas today. You come to this room with your experience. And the dilemma we all face is that we live in the West. And the West has a parallel view that's called religion to the gospel. And what I mean by that is it looks like the gospel, it walks like the gospel, it quacks, but it's not the gospel. And it goes like this. God is good, he's loving and he's kind. And he's so good and he's so loving and he's so kind that he reaches to his creation and he offers them a fresh start, brand new start. And once you get that brand new start, God equips you by his spirit, to where you can live well. You can do right. And you can avoid sin. And you can avoid heartache. So we began the process of learning to change and to live what's called the good Christian life. Problem, honesty requires us to say, man, that doesn't work. It's not working. You either know that this morning or maybe you live in a delusion of comparison where you find yourself basically saying, well, at least I'm not, at least I don't do that or I don't do the other. At least I don't sound like that guy. At least I don't do, all right? Whatever your case is, we find ourselves often trying harder, trying to become more like Christ, And spiraling downward with frustration of failure. Trying to recommit. Failure again. And we come to a conclusion. I don't know if you've come to this conclusion or not. But I've talked to scads of people who come to this conclusion. They come to this conclusion that says, I'm either not a believer. Or I've wrecked my faith. I've had heartache. 
and I've gone so far wrong, my life looks like this. Maybe you're, maybe you're divorced. Maybe at your own hands, you've chosen to walk away. Maybe you're just being unfaithful, and your spouse knows it, and you know it, and you know that your spouse knows it, and there you are. Maybe you, there's a lack of faithfulness to finish anything that you started. Maybe you're fighting the fight today that say, Brian, I just can't get anything right. Maybe your honesty would allow you to say to yourself, man, I'm a lousy parent. I'm a lousy parent. I'll tell this story real quickly. So I try to teach my kids real early. You know, you eat what's put in front of you. So my, young, my oldest son, his name is Sean, he loves soft tacos. Every Wednesday night, we'd go to uh, Taco Bell. One particular Wednesday night, Sean said, as his normal, I said, Dad, I want two soft tacos, no lettuce, no cheese, just meat. So that's what I ordered. That's what a good dad does. I come to the table, I set it down, open the tacos. Guess what's in the tacos? Meat, they got that right, cheese, and lettuce. And because I'm such a sterling parent, I said, son, come on, just pick it off. Just pick it off. So like the good son that he was, he's going, okay, dad, starts picking it off. I take my food, open up my burrito. I like sour cream on my burrito. That's why I look the way I do. Right? So I ordered sour cream on my burrito. I opened my burrito. No sour cream. Because I'm big and I'm able, I jump up and go back to the counter. And just as I approach the counter, I can feel my wife's eyes in the back of my head. It's too late. I'm already there. It's too late. I wish I could say that's the only time I've been a lousy parent. Maybe you too. Maybe you've made mistakes beyond your children, your spouse, maybe your friendship. How about murder? How'd you like that on your resume? Moses had that on his resume at this encounter with God. Paul Tripp says that most people spend their late teens and their 20s and then their 30s They live as astronauts. And an astronaut does this. They explore new worlds. They conquer new things. Their life is invincible. They believe in a bright tomorrow. And sometime later, with enough knockdown in their life and enough disappointment and enough age, what happens is you become an archaeologist. Let me tell you what an archaeologist does. An archaeologist looks back. And some of you, I can see in your faces, you've already started down that road. And the archaeologist looks back and picks up the pieces and starts making, trying to make sense of what their life is and what it's become. Moses was there. Looking back over his life, there's a lot that he could see. Raised in Pharaoh's household, in in the lap of luxury, royalty. Whatever they said went. 
But if you know the story in chapter 2, one day Moses goes out. He knows he's a Hebrew. He sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. He scours the scene and he kills the Egyptian and then hides his body. When it's found out, Moses knew the gig was up. I got to get out. So he heads out. So the first 40 years in the lap of luxury, the second 40 years, God's doing a work on him. So let's talk about what happens in this passage. And I want us just to walk through it. I'm going to tell the story again. I want you to see what only God can do when you come to understand who you are, who he is, and what God's purpose is for your life. So in this passage, in chapter 3, there's two ultimate questions, and there are three decisive answers that God does reach and redeem and resurrects your life no matter where you are. No matter where you are, he's coming after you. So if you'll you'll notice in chapter 3, God says in verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, and I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Then in verse 10, God says this, Therefore, come now, and I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So there's three questions, uh, two questions, key questions, and three decisive answers in this passage. And as I said, there are, there's one message, one sermon, many messages is going to be heard. Because it really depends on where you are this morning. But if you've ever sat in a spot and you've wondered, can God still use me? We want to forever remove any doubt that the salvation that's yours in Jesus Christ forever removes the doubt that God is for you. So I want to show you what happens in verse 11 when God says, Moses, I'm going to send you. First question out of Moses' mouth is this. Who am I that I should go and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses' first question is often our first question. We, this, this is the search for meaning. Now, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze this passage, but man, what a great insight here. Moses is at a crossroads. He is at, a, it was just any other day, out tending sheep. He encounters God. God says, you're the man. First question, who am I? That's the question on many of your lips. In your mind, it's the haunting place in the shallows of the night. It's that, that's what's going on. You want to know who you are. And I will tell you, it's interesting. that I know the scripture is God's word because it shows us just like we are. Instead of Moses going, wow. God, what is this I'm seeing? Who are you? 
First thing he says, who am I? Why? Because our tendency is to focus where? Ourselves. Our tendency is to focus on ourselves. But Moses, when he focuses on himself, he has good reason. He went from riches to the backside of the desert, not tending his own sheep, but tending his father-in-law's sheep. But when God answers him, when he asks this question, it's a tipping point for his life to be changed. He gives him his, the first glimpse of this personal relationship that he's not only going to extend to Moses, but to Moses' people, uh, to God's people, that it's not all about Moses, it's about much more than that. Notice what God says. When he says, who am I? Look at verse 12. God says, certainly I'll be with you. Now, it's short and sweet, but hear me. When Moses wants to know who he is, he's looking at his life from the standpoint, there's no way I'm the right person. But God says, I'm going to be with you. Certainly, I will be with you. Now, we have in in the book of Exodus the central piece for the Hebrew people of this deliverance. In the New Testament, now this is not in your notes, but I'd like you to take your Bible and flip with me over to the book of Ephesians. Now, the Ephesians are past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and Romans. I think everybody knows where Romans is now. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. Scholars, of course, and people who love Jesus have studied, you know, what is Paul trying to say? What is he trying to communicate? Well, there are clear things in Ephesians chapter 1 that point to everything else he does. In fact, hear this, over a hundred times in the New Testament, God inspired the writer Paul to use two little words to talk to believers. This is what he says. Look at verse 1. First, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There it is, in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of his will. Look, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. Where? In the beloved. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Then in verse 9, he made the kind intention of his which he purposed in him. Verse 10, at the end of verse 10, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Now I can go on and on and on. It's over and over and over again. Paul does not want you to miss it. The cornerstone of his theology, the cornerstone of who you are and what you have when you trust Christ is that you're not on your own. God takes you, 
places you in Christ Jesus and makes you right for eternity. But you don't feel that way because you're focused in the wrong place. So am I. This is our identity. And I want you to know, if you bear enough pain into this room today, you may not feel important to anybody else. You may have feel forgotten. Your life is not turned out the way you thought it was supposed to. But according to God, you're vitally important to him. You're bought with the blood. You're destined for the throne. You're made right. And it had nothing to do with you. It had all to do with him and what he accomplishes for us. You are a new creation. Old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now let's go back to Moses a second. Let's just talk about this. He asked, who am I? Next question is the logical question. It's one thing for God to say, I'm going to be with you. It's a whole other thing. He said, well, you're going to be with me. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Now you think, because we look back, that we, that Moses knew it all. Now, he certainly knew as a Hebrew. He knew the God of his fathers. He knew the God of creation. He knew that the Hebrew people, Father Abraham, they identified with. He knew that. But let me tell you, make no mistake, Moses came from the land of plenty of all kinds of things, including God's. He came from the land of plenty. And one of the interesting things about this passage is this. When he says, what is his name? Moses says in verse 13, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to Pharaoh, and I'm going to say, what is his name? He's going to ask me, what is his name? What am I going to say to him? Now, the interesting thing, R.A. Cole says this. In a land of all kinds of gods, there was no reason for Moses to use the singular his. But in this passage, he does. What is his name signifying at that moment Moses understood that all other gods were lame. Here's the one. Here is the one true God. And I'm standing in front of him. And so God responds to him. He tells him who he is. God says in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am... And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, in the English, that's hard to understand. I hope you know the Bible was not written in English. It was written Hebrew and Greek. And God has used men through the ages to interpret accurately. We have a great English text. But understand this, that's hard to translate. Very hard to translate. Scholars have wrestled with it forever. And not clearly evident in the text, in the English, is all the content that's there. But here's what's there. Let me say the best that I am my ability. When, when Moses says, what, who, who are you? Who, who are you? And when God says, I am that I am, it's the Hebrew covenant name for Jehovah. Self-existent. He doesn't need anybody else. He was, is, and shall evermore be consistent with who he is. 
So it kind of goes like this. Moses, you see this bush that you're looking at that's on fire but not consumed? You hear the voice? You see it? When you stand in front of Pharaoh and you say, God says, let my people go. I am at that moment what I am right now. And I am what I was to your father Abraham. And I was what I will be, faithful to the covenant promise to my people. I am what I am. I am what I was. I am what I will be. I do not change. People change. God doesn't change. And when he came for Moses, he wanted him to understand, when you go in front of Pharaoh, the king, the God of that day, you're not going alone, and I will be exactly what you need. So if you sit here this morning and you say, Brian, can this really be so that God's for me? God is revealing himself here to a person who is murder, a murderer. God uses a person like that. You don't know where I am today, you may say. You know, if we were sitting down having coffee, maybe you would say to me, my life has become get up, survive, go back to bed. Get up, survive, go back to bed. And I do it every day, and I lay in my bed at night, and I wonder how did I get here? When you're a child of the king, when you've trusted in Christ, no matter how you feel in this moment, you can know the truth of Romans chapter 8. In verses 31 through 39, I'm going to pick up in verse 37. Paul said this. He said, in all these things, all the tribulations, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor principalities or powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God who's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. He says that to you. You know there is but one that he forsook that was his son. He turned his back while he was on the cross because he was bearing at that moment your pain, your loss, your sin, my sin. And he did that so he would, he would never have to leave you. And he doesn't. I have once had a young lady that I went to church with. And I was getting my hair cut one day, and she was in the same place I was. And she, the person who was cutting her hair said, where do you go to church? And she said, oh, I go out to so-and-so. And she says, but those people out there are just broke down. They're just a bunch of broke down people. And I will tell you, in that moment, it just kind of ran all over me because I heard it clearly. And I had one of those moments. You ever have one of those moments you're like a dog? You go, what? But the grace of God was so good in that moment. To my heart, he said, she's right. We are broke down. 
I'm broke down, you're broke down, we fall and we can't get up. Right? Come on, are you awake? I hope you see that. If you don't see that, you're living in a delusion of, of comparison. Paul Tripp says, the Bible requires that we make one painfully humbling admission, the one confession we work so hard to avoid that our deepest, most pervasive, and most abiding problem is us. When God comes to Moses, God says, I'm sending you, certainly I'll be with you, and this is who I am. He's going to change his life. And some of you lost confidence that God is going to change your life. In fact, you believe God for too little. Maxie Dunham, in his uh, commentary on the book of Exodus, he says, in the Christian life, in our response and our relationship with God and to the gospel, most of us don't arrogantly aspire for too much, but we sheepishly settle for so little. I believe it's because we think far too little about God and far too much about us. I know, I know this, and I'm not saying that you're not going to think about yourself, but I know this is the case, that the gospel is radical. The gospel is radical. Toyan Chavijan said this, you know you've heard the gospel of grace when your initial reaction is, wait a minute, that's crazy, that's radical. That can't be right. That God would see you and the messes that we make and he would step down and understand that you can't make your life right. But he comes and he calls you out. And he comes and he says, certainly I will be with you. The gospel is radical. And I believe Grace Fellowship and every other church on every corner in this nation that believes the gospel, we have a tendency to become numb to the life-changing aspect. That there is no sin... And there is no place that you are right now that the gospel cannot come to you and change your life. John Piper says, so often believers live what's called the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic looks like this. You get grace. You then go work to pay back grace. He says, let us not say that grace creates debt. Let us say grace pays debt. Your debt is paid. Let us not live there. Let us live in the freedom of knowing what our design is. Our design is to be so much more. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes. Let me quickly tell you a story. You know, I work for a builder. Most people think you work for a builder, you ought to be able to build. I can't do anything with a hammer. My father-in-law is here this morning. 
He's done everything he can to teach me I can't learn. So my wife does this stuff. She's better at it. All right? But when we were young, I always thought that I could do what my father did. And my father would work with hot wires all the time. He knew enough about electricity. He'd do it. If he got bit, no big deal. Well, so I thought, I can do that. So one particular day, I'm in my, we watched a bunch of cartoons when our kids were real small. And I'm in the box in my bedroom, and I'm working. I'm leaving the switch on downstairs because I can work with hot stuff. And, man, about that time, wham! I mean, not just a little wham. I felt my teeth go whap, you know? Uh, Some of you know, all right? If you've not, stay out, okay? I mean, I didn't knock, I mean, back, I'm sitting down hard. My daughter's in the room, she's playing around, she goes, Daddy, what's wrong? I said, Honey, I I just got electrocuted. (laughs) And she said, I didn't see your bones. How about you? I mean, that's electricity. But how many of you find your way, no matter how much you try, to darkness? When you look at the cross, you can know this. The the shame, the pain, the horribleness of it. The reason why is because of our darkness. Paid in full. I'll close with this. From a New Testament perspective, Zacchaeus is a great example of what happens when you encounter Jesus. When you encounter Jesus on a day when you're known for being not the best type of guy. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, the Bible says in Luke 19. Which means he was the scum of the earth. The scum. And he was shorter than I am. I believe that. And Zacchaeus, one particular day, heard Jesus was coming. And all you had to do to find Jesus was follow the crowd. It was masses of people. Zacchaeus was not tall enough to see over the crowd or strong enough to get through. So Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree. I love the detail in scripture. The sycamore tree. He climbs up it. Jesus comes along. He looks up. Jesus does. And he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming to your house today. The Bible says that Zacchaeus' life was changed, and you can read it on your own. But let me tell you this. We lose sight of what that looks like. It looks like this in your world. You're walking through Kroger or Meyer. You come down an aisle, and there is Jesus coming the other way. And once you cast your eyes away, because you know who he is, he says, Brian... I'm on my way to your house. You better get home. Jesus comes and knocks on your door. He watches football with you on Sunday. 
He eats your dip. And he chats with you about the real you. And he assures you that his payment is sufficient. And there is no place, no one in this room beyond the reach of his love and grace. None of us. You're either going to make excuses or you're going to live a life forgiven by God's grace. Don't live your life making excuses for why you're beyond God's use. God comes for you. He calls you. And even some of you right now sense that the Lord wants to make you right and give you a fresh start. Let's pray together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Psalm 86 is one of only five in the Old Testament that is labeled a prayer. Now, no one, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. Nobody's going to come down the aisle. We're not doing, that's not what this is for. But this is about where you are right now. And David made this his prayer, and we're going to pray Scripture together, and I'm going to lead us now. David prayed, for you are great and perform wonderful deeds. You alone are God. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may live according to your truth. Grant us purity of heart so that we may honor you with all our heart. We will praise you, O Lord, my God. We will give glory to your name forever. For your love for us is very great. And you've rescued us from the depths of death. Help us, O Lord, exalt you for all that you've done. And Lord, for some of us, let us come back and exalt the greatness of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.